please take your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians. Excuse me, Philemon. Have we got some sound? We got sound. You hearing me now? Okay. Philemon, chapter 1. We began our study of the book of Philemon, the shortest of Paul's writings that are contained in our Bible. And we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday at verse 4. Philemon, verse 4. Paul writes, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Abibi Balika took the running world by storm when he won the marathon in the 1960 Olympics. This virtual unknown ran barefooted through the streets of Rome, and the next day, the headlines in the paper stated this. It took one million Italian soldiers to conquer Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, from which this man hailed. It took one million soldiers to conquer Addis Ababa, but it only took one Ethiopian soldier to conquer Rome. This man was amazing. Not only did he win the 1960 marathon, he went on to 1964 in Tokyo and also won the marathon. He was not stopped yet, though, because he went to the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Prior to that race, a sports writer asked his coach, will he win again? And his coach simply said, if he is well, he will win again. The result was that when the race began, at the 10-kilometer point, he was in the lead pack. But at the 17-kilometer mark, he dropped out. He retired from the race. For you see, just the week before, he had suffered a hairline fracture in one of the bones in his leg, which rendered him unable to complete the race. After the race, he said, My goal is to go to the 1972 Olympics and compete again and win an unprecedented third gold medal in this most grueling of all the races in the marathon. In 1969, his plans were interrupted when he was in a serious automobile accident in his homeland, paralyzing him from the waist down. When he was undergoing physical therapy in England, he was asked the question by another sports writer how this had impacted his life. And this is what he said. Listen carefully. He said, God was with me in my victories. God will be with me in my injuries. If God sees fit, I will walk again. God didn't see fit for him to walk again. In fact, when he was 41, just four years later after this accident, he died of a brain hemorrhage. But he refused to see himself as a victim in life. He was a victor. And the victory came through his Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Do you view yourself most often as a victim in life? or as a victor in life? Think about that in a moment. Are you a person who tends 
to whine and wallow in your self-pity? Or rather, are you a person who rises above the hardships which you face? The Apostle Paul was one who was able to rise above the hardships which he faced. And his hardships were many, by the way. He wanted the Corinthians to know that he suffered hardship in the province of Asia. He said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. I would say that's pressure, wouldn't you? He did not try to cover up the fact that he had pressure in his life. But we saw last week the way in which he introduces himself in this writing to Philemon. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But he didn't whine and complain about that, did he? We saw also last week that he says in Ephesians chapter 6 that I am an ambassador in chains. He was not a victim in that prison cell in Rome. He was victorious. Later in this passage, if you want to glance down, look at verse 9. In that passage, he describes himself in this way. Paul the aged. He was an old man by his day standards. In his 60s, he was aging in this prison. From the viewpoint of the world, he would have been rotting to death in the prison. But the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. He was victorious, not a victim. He refused to give in to the troubles which he had in his life. And also, in another imprisonment, the last imprisonment of his life, he speaks in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in this manner. At my first defense, there was no one who supported me because they had all deserted me. But then he goes on to say, but the Lord was with me and he strengthened me. A victim? Hardly. A victor? Absolutely a victor. We saw last week that we're to be like Paul. And once more, we see we're to be like Paul in the way in which he addressed the difficulties of his life. And how did he address them? This passage of Scripture is so plain. It's so simple. It really doesn't need a lot of explanation. He addressed them by praying. Look at the way in which he begins. And we see, first of all, the way in which he prayed, his prayers were filled with thanksgiving. Notice the way he begins. He says, I thank my God always. How could he do that? More importantly, how can you and I do that? Thanking our God always, even when we're old and infirmed like he was, even when we're in some sort of prison, even when nobody is there to support us in the human realm. How can we do it? How was he able to do it? He was able to do it because he believed knowing that his God was a sovereign God. Twice in this passage of Scripture so far, he addresses Jesus as the Lord Jesus. Have you noticed that? The Lord Jesus, suggesting the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in his life. But he also recognized the sovereignty of the Spirit of God in his life and the sovereignty of God the Father in his life. The one man in the last 15 years among evangelicals in America who really has done more than any other man that I know of through his speaking and writing to reassert the sovereignty of God, this all-important doctrine. It's really the most important doctrine about God. His name is John Piper. He's the pastor of the Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. On December the 21st last year, he was diagnosed with cancer. And that news hit him as it would anyone like a ton of bricks. Undoubtedly, there were tears which he shed, 
tears which his wife Noel shed, his four children and his grandchildren, his church, who love him dearly. And after he had composed himself and reflected upon what had happened, he wrote a pastoral letter that was sent out to all the members in the church. And this is what he wrote. This news has, of course, been good for me. The most dangerous thing in the world is the sin of self-reliance and the stupor of worldliness. The news of cancer has a wonderfully blasting effect on both. I thank God for that. The times with Christ in these days have been unusually sweet. God has designed this trial for my good. So I am praying, Lord, for your great glory, number one, don't let me miss any of the sanctifying blessings that you have for me in this experience. Number two, grant that the surgery be successful in removing cancer and sparing important nerves. Now, I like that especially. He was very specific in his praying. And he didn't say, Lord, bring it on. He didn't say that, did he? He said, give me more cancer. That's not what he said. He was asking God for a healing. And that certainly is an act of faith. Thirdly, grant that this light and momentary trial would work to spread a passion for your supremacy for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And may Noel and all close to me be given great peace. And all of this through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. A follow-up letter dated February the 3rd of this year. The God of peace is keeping our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are content. God is our hope. The best surgeon can have a bad day. An average surgeon can have a really good day. In the end, God decides we would not have it any other way. One good brother has quoted John Newton to us. And you know who John Newton was. He wrote Amazing Grace, right, among other things. And this is what Newton said. Everything is needful that he sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Amen. In a book entitled Practicing the Presence of People by Mike Mason, in a, cha- in a chapter entitled Let God Be God, he writes in this vein with regard to the sovereignty of God and recognizing that how this is essential if you and I are going to deal with the difficulties of our lives constructively. He writes, if you do not have a God who is free to do anything he pleases with your life, then you will not have a God who can set you free regardless of your circumstances. Instead, you will have a conditional God, one who will be real to you only when your children are well behaved, your debts are paid, and your diseases are healed. Wow. I want a sovereign God. I don't want a conditional God. I don't know about you. And the way in which the Apostle Paul could deal with the situation in which he found himself was because he recognized that God was in control, not only of the universe, but of his personal world. And in order for us to give thanks to God always, like Paul did, and in the process rise above our own victimization and be victorious, is we recognize that our God is a sovereign God. The next thing, I think, which helped Paul to give thanks all the time was the awareness that his God was not only a sovereign God, but his God was a loving God. 
Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love, is what God says in many places, in Jeremiah 31, 3 specifically. And the refrain in Psalm 136 has always encouraged me. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. One thing which you and I can be sure of is that God has made a pact with us to love us as His children through thick and thin. And He will not let anything enter into our lives that is ultimately bad for us because our God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And we need to cling tenaciously to that truth. This is not the opiate of the people, by the way. This is the truth. And the truth sets people free. We need to recognize the sovereignty of God, the love of God. And then Paul knew that his imprisonment and all the attendant negative circumstances in his life would serve to glorify God. He remembered probably what Jesus had said when Jesus says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Did he bear fruit in prison? We saw that last week. The gospel got out of that prison cell all the way into Caesar's palace and people were saved in Caesar's household. People heard the gospel. Would they have heard the gospel if Paul had not been imprisoned in Rome? No, they wouldn't have probably. They heard the gospel through this man's difficulty and God was glorified by his much fruit bearing. When God gives you and me some difficulty, I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating today. When God gives us some difficulty, people who don't know Christ and who know we're Christians are going to watch us and see how we deal with the difficulty. And the door will fling wide open for us to witness to the power of Jesus Christ to sustain, not just in good times, but more importantly, during the bad times in our lives. Here's another reason I believe the Apostle Paul had prayers that were full of thanksgiving. It was because he knew that it would make him more like Jesus. He knew what the writer of Hebrews wrote when he said that Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Therefore, the more we suffer, and look, we don't need to go out looking for someone to whip up on us. We're just following Christ. And you don't need to borrow trouble. I don't need to borrow trouble. We just need to be Christians in the way in which we live. And when trouble comes, we'll deal with it. But we do know that the suffering which enters into our lives is designed to make us more like Christ. Did Jesus glorify the Father? Completely. All the time. Not just part-time. All the time He glorified the Father. Now here's the last reason that I could think of at least, and there's probably a dozen more, as to why he could always give thanks to God and why his prayers were full of thanksgiving. And let me just stop here just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the Bible says, Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. It is tough to praise God when things aren't going my way. I don't know about you. It's hard. Sometimes I do it through clenched teeth. It's against my will almost, but I find the desire somewhere deep within me to go ahead and praise God. The fruit of lips, the writer goes on to say, which give thanks to His name. The fruit of lips, praising God, this sets us free, thanking God for especially those bad things which happen to our lives because we see a deeper purpose in those things. Teresa of Avila, this great Christian saint who went all over Spain in an ox cart, reforming the Carmelite monasteries, she said this, and I love what she said. 
he said, she said, it is our task to take what the Lord gives us and not to tire ourselves out worrying about what he does not give us. Do you ever get tired? I, I, I wear myself out. I don't know about you. I can relate to her worrying of what I don't have in my life. But she goes on to say, our task is simply to think of the great God and Lord we have. If we have the Lord, we have more than we will ever need in this life. Nothing can compare to Him. Nothing. But I like a little anecdote out of her life too. This shows her humanity, and the Apostle Paul had his moments as well. But this is what she said one time when she was traveling the country and she fell out of the ox cart into a muddy stream beside the trail that she was traveling on. And she got up out of that old muddy stream and she shook her hand at God and she says, Oh God, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you don't have many of them. (laughs) Do you ever feel that way about the Lord? She was real, wasn't she? And the Apostle Paul was real because later in this passage of Scripture, in verse 7, he talks about how the love of Philemon brought great joy and comfort to him. He needed comforting. He was a human being who needed comforting. You will never get to the place in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ where you will not need the comfort of other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need that kind of comfort in our lives. Well, what was the outcome of his always giving thanks? Health was the outcome. Hans Selye, who is a pioneer in the study of how emotional state impacts one's physical health, says that the two most negative emotions you and I have in our lives that affect us negatively physically are revenge and bitterness. And then he goes on to say, and I don't know if he's a believer or not, but he goes on to say this. He says, the thing that will help your health physically more than anything else, guess what it is? Gratitude. Gratitude. Paul was healthier, spiritually healthier, Undoubtedly physically healthier because he praised God. He refused to be a victim. He chose to be a victor because he focused not on his circumstances but on the Lord. Now, the Bible says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word which Paul chooses for prayer is a broad word, but the basic idea is the idea of adoration and worship. The most basic element of our praying should be that of praising the Lord with thanksgiving. Now, The thanksgiving did not merely lead in Paul's life, nor it should in our lives, did not merely lead to gratitude, but it also led to a spirit of submission, recognizing that our God is a sovereign God. You know what we tend to do? We tend to try to escape our adversity, right? We run from it. And in running from it, we actually embrace our anxieties because we're forced to follow our worries instead of following our Lord. And what the Lord says is what we need to do is recognize that the adversities in our lives are things that should cause us to count joy in those situations because we know those things are used to help us to grow spiritually. So the first element of the two elements that are characteristic of Paul's prayer, and we want to be like Paul. That's what the Word of God says. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We want to be like Paul. Paul's prayers were full of thanks. They were also full of other people. 
I like this especially because I'm a people person. It's easy for me to be interested in people. Some of you are not people people, and therefore you don't care whether you ever see a person. It's just a real task for you to come to a group like this. Probably the extroverts outnumber the introverts four to one here today, probably. You've come against your nature to be here today. But for Paul, people were paramount. Philemon was paramount. Look again at verse 4. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Some of you know the name Ed Young Sr. He's the pastor of the Second Baptist Church in Houston. I'll never forget having a conversation with a fellow pastor here when I first became a pastor about 30 years ago now. And he had had the privilege of being a member of Dr. Young's church when he ministered in Columbia, South Carolina. And he said this about Ed Young. He said, when people were walking out the door at the end of the service, he dealt with each person as if that person was the only person who came to church that day. Very personal in his approach. I thought, wow, that man's like Jesus. (laughs) Because Jesus is interested in us as individuals. The Apostle Paul was interested in individuals. In verse 4, as we've read, he thanked God always making mention of you, Philemon, the individual, in my prayers. Now, what does not appear to the English reader's eyes is this tiny preposition. And remember, every word of God is inspired. Not just the big words. Not just sanctification, glorification, justification. All those big words. But even these little prepositions are inspired. The word translated in is a word which can equally well, and I suggest ought to be translated this way, at the time of. So let's read it with that in mind. I thank my God always making mention of you at the time of my prayers. Paul didn't stop being a Jew when he met Jesus Christ. He was a completed Jew. And when he met Jesus, he still undoubtedly carried some of the practices that were characteristic of him prior to meeting Christ. There were set times for Jews to pray every day. Now, prior to his meeting Jesus, they were merely ritualistic times. But after he met Jesus, those times were filled with great meaning. And part of the time, undoubtedly, he would have spent praying for Philemon and for Aphia and for Archippus and every other man and woman whom he names in his writings. Have you ever looked at all the names of the people that he refers to in his writings? So what about you and me? Are we going to be like Paul in our praying? If we're going to be, we're going to have a prayer list. Do you have a prayer list? Let me just ask you. With people's names on it? Are you rather methodical in the way in which you go down your prayer list as you pray? Not just for your family, but also your spiritual family. People that you want to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Are you praying for people? People who are sick. People who need the touch of God in their lives. In their spirit, souls, or body or all three. Are you praying that way? This is what was characteristic of Paul. He had other people in his prayers. And they were individuals. They were not just a mass of people. Lord, just bless Coronado Baptist Church. I'm not sure the Lord hears that prayer. I'll be honest with you. Because he's interested in you and me. He knows us by name. And if we're going to be like Paul who was like Christ, we're going to know people's names. And we're going to care about people enough to pray for those people. And like Paul prayed for Philemon. Let's consider the content, or really, first of all, the cause of the prayer in verse 5. The reason that he made mention of Philemon regularly in his prayers is because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. He heard of his faith. And we know without faith it's impossible to please God. 
And we know how Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He says the three things which are going to last are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of them is love, right? In James chapter 2, we know what the Bible says. The Bible says faith without works is dead. In other words, if we don't do what Dan challenged us to do as he led the pastoral prayer, to feed the hungry, to visit the sick, to minister to people who are in prison, if we don't do that, we're showing an absence of genuine faith, right? Now, in that same passage of Scripture in James chapter 2, the Bible says this, You believe there is one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. The demons of hell believe in God. They have their doctrine right But they're not going to heaven, and they don't give one whit about you or me as individuals. So the faith in the Lord Jesus of Philemon was demonstrated in his love for the brothers in the church. And the word love is the characteristic New Testament word, agape, which is not like the world's love. The world's love is only evoked by people who are beautiful, people who are rich, people who are smart, people who... Like us, really. Isn't that true? But God's love is contrary to that. God's love, the love that Philemon demonstrated, the love that Paul demonstrated, the love that Jesus tells us to demonstrate, to validate that He is who He is. You know, our loving each other either denies Christ to the world or verifies Christ to the world. This love was the love Philemon showed. Now, how did he show it? We really don't have a specific statement to the effect as to how he showed it. But I have a suspicion, and I think it's right, or I wouldn't share it with you. Let's look again at verse 1 and 2. We looked at these last week. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphi, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your home. Philemon, and if my suggestion is correct, Aphia, his wife, had a home. And the church of Jesus in Colossae, at least one expression of it, met in their home. And their home was an oasis of love in a desert spiritually in Colossae. And people came to that place. And their lives were changed by the power of Christ mediated through the Word of God and through the love that was demonstrated in their home. Now look at verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Did Paul see the demonstration of that love? He only heard of the demonstration of that love. He had not seen it. But this shows us his understanding and encourages us to the proper understanding of our relationship to the body of Christ. The body of Christ all over the world is meeting to glorify Christ today and to be the body of Christ And if one part of the body of Christ, regardless of where it may be found, suffers, the whole body suffers. If one part is honored, the whole body is to rejoice. Is that characteristic of you and your life? Are you so concerned about your own life? Are we so concerned about what goes on on this little plot of ground a couple of hours a week that we ignore what God is doing around the world? God has called us to something marvelous when He's called us to be in His church, the body of Christ. He experienced much joy and comfort in Philemon's love as it was demonstrated to those Christians in Colossae. Now look at the last part of verse 7. Because the hearts 
of the saints, that's all the believers, not a special category of Christians as we have seen, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now this word refreshed is one of those wonderful New Testament words. In classical Greek, it was used to describe the rest that soldiers experienced between military campaigns. How many of you are currently serving or have served in the military? Would you just raise your hand? Look across this room. Many people. Many people. Were you ever in a situation... How many Vietnam veterans do we have here today? Okay. Several Vietnam veterans. How many veterans do we have of the current war or desert storm here? Raise your hand. Fewer. Fewer, but we have some. Do you remember when you were given your R&R? Was that awesome or what? To get the rest you badly needed... Remember, we are fellow soldiers of Christ Jesus. We're in a battle. And there are times when we need rest from that battle. And the Lord is so gracious to give us that rest. Remember what he said to his apostles in Mark 6.31 when he said, Look, guys, retreat for a while. They had been involved in a season of very intense ministry. And he says, Look, what I want you to do is I want you to retreat for a while. Do you know the Lord will call you every once in a while to retreat? And what a refreshing experience that is. It's temporary because just like these people who served in battle, more of you probably went back into battle than stayed at home when you had your R&R. It was just a break in the action. But you went back into the battle. We're in a battle. The main idea of this word, however, probably is to contrast the idea of the weariness that comes from that kind of battling and the great peace and rest that we have in Christ. This is a permanent kind of rest, the kind of rest that's independent, actually, of the circumstances of our lives. Now, here's the question. Not whether you're experiencing that rest, and I hope you are. It's available to you in Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his promise. If you'll submit to me, he says, you will find rest for your souls. But here's the more important question. Are you that kind of brother or sister to somebody else? Remember, the problem is an internal focus in our lives. The liberation is when we get outside of ourselves and start looking to other people. As I was reflecting on this, the one instant in my life that stands out of being refreshed in this way took place on February 1st, 1999. The day will never escape my memory unless I get a bad case of dementia one day, and I probably will <laughs> have such a good memory in this life. It would probably be kind of a tough way to end it. But I'll try to praise God. Come see me in the nursing home and tell me, praise the Lord, okay? Please do that if I'm having that problem at that time. Okay, but I got a call from a friend. His name's Rob I hadn't talked to Rob in quite a while. lives several states away. And he said, the Lord put you on my heart today. And I wonder if there's any trouble in your life right now. And I had never been troubled in my life like I was that day. I was refreshed by that brother that day. I'll never forget the day. And I love that man. And I'd do anything for him. I'd move heaven and earth to do anything for that man, that brother in Christ. I didn't tell him what my trouble was, but I just came to tears when he called me and told me 
that he was praying for me that day, that God had put me on his heart. What a personal God we have. And do you know how he makes himself personal? Through you and through me. That's how he makes himself personal. Now let's look at the content of this prayer. It's given to us in verse 6. And we're about to finish up here. This is important though. Please stay with me. In verse 6, Paul says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge. There were two words which were available to Paul for knowledge. One is a less intensive word. He chooses the word here which means full knowledge. Through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Which is in you for Christ's sake. There's quite a bit of opinion about what Paul means when he says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective, etc., etc. Because the word fellowship, at its most basic meaning, it means to have things in common. That's what the word koinonia means, to have things in common. It was used to describe business partnerships. So one suggestion is when Paul speaks this prayer over Philemon, he's saying somehow or another may the partnership that you, Philemon, and I have in Christ be used to help you go ever deeper in your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The song which we sang earlier, more of you in my life, that refrain, more of you in my life, that's what the Lord wants for you and me, more of Him in our lives. The question is, how does that happen? The second suggestion of this concept of the fellowship of your faith, the word fellowship simply means what we typically think of it as meaning where brothers and sisters get together for prayer, for praise, for just general encouragement of each other. So what Paul might have been saying to Philemon is, I'm praying that God will use just the fellowship you have with other brothers and sisters in Christ to build you up. Isn't it wonderful that we have a place to meet like this? Thank God for the opportunity to have a place in other places where we can gather in homes, in restaurants, different places. The third suggestion, this is the one I think is correct. The idea of fellowship carries with it the very act of sharing itself. And we know that Philemon had been sharing. He'd already been sharing his time. And there's clear indication from this letter to Philemon that he was a well-to-do man. And he did not become wealthy the old-fashioned way. He really earned it and worked for it by the sweat of his brow. But he shared his time. He shared his treasure. He opened his home, and Athia should be right in there. I mean, she was the homemaker. She was the one who had to see, even though she might have had many slaves or servants, that everything was in order. But she was the one who really had the pressure on her to make the house inviting for the church which met in their home. But here we see him and we see Athia sharing of their lives with these dear saints, all the saints in Athia. I mean, in Colossae, as they shared the love of God with those people. And what they learned was, and what you and I learn is, is it's only when we share out of whatever the Lord's given us. And we don't have to be wealthy. We don't have to be prestigious. This applies to all of us. We just share of the life of Christ in us, and we give it away, and we give it away. And in giving it away, that's when we learn what Paul was praying for Philemon. What did he pray? that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. You will never know, 
nor will I. Every good thing which is available to us, and really not merely available, that is resident in us, in Jesus, until we adopt this perspective, giving our lives away. Giving our lives away in the fashion that Philemon did it, and also in the way in which Paul did it. Remember, his prayers were full of thanksgiving, and they were full of other people. He prayed for people. There's nothing more significant that you can do for me or I for you than to pray for each other. The way Paul prays for Philemon. And notice the goal of all this love and all this faith. It was for Christ's sake. It wasn't for Philemon's sake. It wasn't for Paul's sake. It was for Christ's sake. And that should be the motivation of our lives. That whether we eat or drink or pray or fellowship, or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray.